You're listening to Hear Arizona. Addressing issues, empowering our community. In our first fire episode, we looked at how wildfires are changing, how they're not only getting bigger, but hotter, more destructive, and faster spreading. But what does one of these rapidly spreading fires actually look and feel like on the ground? And what can it do when it ignites right next to a neighborhood? In this episode, we're going to focus on one community during one particularly bad wildfire season. Because the summer of 2022 in Flagstaff, Arizona, a city of 145,000 people nestled into a thick pine tree forest, shows just how stressful, costly, and long-lasting the effects of a wildfire can be. More Americans than ever live in places at risk of wildfire. And for most people who lose their homes to fire, homeowners insurance does not cover the full cost of rebuilding. So when disaster strikes, it takes a community-wide Herculean effort to bounce back. This story starts on Easter Sunday, April 17th, 2022. A hiker noticed some smoke and called in to report it. It could have been mistaken for a campfire from a distance. It was small, only around three acres in size. Fire engines went to the scene and within just a few hours, the fire was contained. No big deal. It barely made any news. A relatively tiny fire neutralized relatively quickly, or so it seemed. And there was no prepping for it because, I mean, when we first heard about it being like where it was, it was like, oh, okay, it's out, so no big deal. The next day, Monday, firefighters went back to the fire and kept working on it. At that point, there was no smoke and no flames. It was routine. A couple other fires in Arizona made headlines that day, but not this one. And early the next morning, things were still normal. I'm up early, early in the morning, and when I went outside I could, with the dogs, I could, you know, 4.30, 5 o'clock, I didn't smell anything, you know. But then the wind started blowing. I couldn't stand face into it. I had to turn to my side, you know, to stand there because it was just terrible. And it, and it kept switching. It came, it, every time you turned around, the wind was coming from a different direction. Suddenly, that little, seemingly contained fire in the woods, just northeast of Flagstaff, was starting to spread out of control. My uncle had seen smoke because my uncle and my aunt lived close-ish, and they had gotten evacuated as well. And he knows that my family doesn't really do too much online. So he was like, I don't know if they know how bad this fire is getting. I don't know if they've looked at the news. So he drove over to their house to make sure that they knew. My brother-in-law, if it wouldn't have been for my brother-in-law coming over, I wouldn't have known about this. Because I come outside in the morning, I saw the smoke, and I figured it was coming from that Prescott fire because of the winds and stuff. And then my brother-in-law pulled in and said, you got to get out of here, there's a fire coming. Gusts of wind up to 50 miles per hour sent the fire racing towards neighborhoods. The fire was burning so hot and so fast, the smoke was on fire. I had never seen nothing like that in my life. I was in a meeting in town and heard the radios go off and I heard the evacuation notices going out and then jumped in the truck and drove out to where they were setting up the incident command post. The fire was coming across through Lennox neighborhood right there and we heard two loud explosions. And 
and I'm like, oh crap, let's yeah. get out of here now. Because we thought there was propane tanks, but what it ended up being was cars, the gas tanks yeah, and cars. Yeah. The, the initial attack efforts, just from what you could hear on the radio, were incredibly intense. People having to, to really protect themselves while they're trying to protect the structures. I was watching it come out of that out of that straw over there, out between them hills. And then next thing I know, the neighbor's sheds caught fire, then this caught fire up here. And, you know, by the time they come out, this was on fire. I just went in and told them, I said, we got to go. Between the time we issued the emergency notification for set and the time they hit go, which means evacuate, was 12 minutes. It, it was just coming towards us and we were waiting to see what, what it was gonna do. And then once these trees here caught, that's when we got out of here and when we were driving down, the fire had already gone around the yard and at the driveway there, it was on both sides of us as we were going. The sheriff's department was literally pulling people out of these homes when the home was on fire. We pulled up to a house that had fire creeping around the property and you know, People say, put the wet stuff on the red stuff. We uh, had to use some chainsaws to break up some fences that were on fire and, and mop up the fire around a home and then go to the next one and then go to the next one. It was a wild thing to be part of, to see 40, 50 mile an hour winds and flames just blowing sideways and embers just going everywhere. We actually drove to the bottom of the road and then we were sitting and waiting and he drove up in the truck to see what was going on up here and that's when he came back down and said the house caught, we got, you know, and we went over to my cousin's house. He saw the house catch on fire and they had minutes maybe. They got the evacuation notice as they were leaving and even like not even 15 minutes later, the house was on fire and yeah, it, it was hard because like there's fire trucks at the bottom like of our driveway and they couldn't do anything. You know, there, there's very little a fire truck full of water is going to do when, when the winds are blowing like that. Um, so it, it all happened so fast. Those 30 homes that burned down was probably all within a couple of hours, basically. And then we couldn't go south because we waited too long. We had to go north through the Grand Canyon and go all the way around. But guess what? All the communication lines were down. And luckily, good, good lesson for us, we keep cash case yeah and they didn't take credit card up at the gas station everybody had to pay cash i've been part of some pretty big fires wildfires in the woods but i've never seen anything blow through a town like that you know that was kind of what they would call a career fire where it's you know hopefully we never see that again in our career my son was at school so that i pulled him out of school and i let him know what was going on and he's 10 years old so that was kind of a big hit to him well i was at school and it happened but when i when my mom told me i was just i couldn't i can't even explain it i was like lost in my feelings like my heart was broken but at the same time i didn't really believe it but then, so I thought it was, thought it was just a prank, and, and, and my mom showed me the pictures. I just sat, da sat down there for a few, few seconds. After a while, I got used to the feeling. And then I took more positive looks at it, because it's a whole new start. Okay, that's good.
That's good. Yeah, we're moving forward. We're moving yep. forward and we've gotten a bunch of help and we're gonna keep going, huh? Yep. The Tunnel Fire, as it came to be known, was a real-life illustration of a lot of the things we learned about last episode. It happened in mid-April, significantly earlier than the traditional start of fire season. Warmer temperatures have made the fire season up to 80 days longer than it used to be. And it spread fast, in part because of the dry conditions in the forest. Arizona and the rest of the West is in the midst of its worst drought in over 1,000 years. And it also spread fast because of intense wind. One expert told me that warming temperatures have meant that the springtime in Flagstaff is windier than it used to be. By Tuesday afternoon, April 19th, two days after it started, the tunnel fire had burned down 30 homes in Flagstaff. And by then, it was all over the news, in Arizona and beyond. Wildfires exploding in the southwest. To the state of emergency in Arizona, the fast-growing tunnel fire. Forcing nearly 800 people from their homes. The flames burning nearly 21,000 acres. Damage this fire has done is larger than Manhattan. Firefighters continued working on the fire for weeks. By May 1st, it was 95% contained. After those dramatic first few days, it never burned down any more homes. And once it settled down, naturally, so did most of the media coverage. But once the fire's out, the work is just getting started. A wildfire doesn't last a couple harrowing days and then things just go back to normal. It changes the neighborhoods, people, and natural landscape for months, years, and even decades. The city's scientists, government officials, volunteer groups, and everyday citizens are working tirelessly and spending tens of millions of dollars to repair the damage from the fire and prepare for the next looming disasters that are becoming inevitable. And the vast majority of that work happens outside the spotlight, well after the flames have been extinguished. Nobody's there when the things get less exciting. You have a lot of people there when it's like, oh, this is exciting and everything because there's a fire and everything and it's that. And then once it's like, well, we get to go back to our normal lives. This isn't as exciting for us anymore. And it's like, well, we're still dealing with this and still need help, so. <laughs> From here, Arizona, this is Inhospitable. I'm Anthony Wallace. I drove up to Flagstaff on a nice Saturday morning about seven weeks after the tunnel fire. A few days before that, Coconino County Deputy Manager and Public Works Director Lucinda Andriani promised me over the phone that it'd be a busy day of cleanup. We met near where the fire struck and I jumped in her truck. Hi there, good Hi. morning. Hi. Nice good morning. to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you. Is it All so? Right. Should I come with you then? Yeah, okay. absolutely. If you're okay with that. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, great. We drove up into the Tunnel Fire's burn area, a neighborhood on the sloping base of the San Francisco Peaks, an old volcano that has Arizona's highest point, Mount Humphreys. So we had 30 homes that were 
entirely burned, you know, complete loss. Um, there are some handful back this way. Most are this direction. Here's, here's one you can see here. There is another big reason why wildfires are becoming more of a problem recently that has nothing to do with climate change or the environment at all. More people are moving into what experts call the wildland urban interface, or WUI. The WUI is where homes encroach into forests and other wild areas and intermingle among natural vegetation. Neighborhoods like this one that are outside the city and surrounded by natural trees are apparently becoming a lot more popular. One study showed that between 1990 and 2010, the number of people living in the WUI more than doubled. And then you can see it burned one home up there on the corner, then it jumped. Now this home on this side of the house, it burned right through here, but didn't burn down the home. Then the two homes to upstream of him, right, were both burned down to ground. Yeah, I mean, it looks like right? the trees that are just right next to his house yeah. were a little burned. Yeah. Before I got there, I expected all the homes that burned down to be in one block, like at the epicenter of the firestorm. But that wasn't how it was at all. They were scattered all through the spread out pine tree filled neighborhood. One house would look perfectly fine, while the one next door was totally burned down. So the fire does not burn as one massive wall of flame consuming everything in its path. It jumps around, lighting up wherever embers catch something flammable. So given this fact, there's actually a lot you can do as a homeowner to reduce the chances of losing your home even if a wildfire comes right up against it. A lot of experts I talk to stress the importance of clearing out flammable items like pine needles, mulch, and wood around the perimeter of a home. Firewise USA is a national program dedicated to reducing wildfire risk, and it's a great resource for tips like these. Eventually, Lucinda and I arrived at the site of one of the burned down homes where we met some other county officials and volunteers. One of those county officials told me, What we saw in the, this particular fire is the houses that did mitigate, that did do the cleanups around their houses, that had defensible space, really had a better shot. And while there is a lot you can do to improve your home's chances in a wildfire, a lot of it comes down to luck. Um, so you said you live nearby? Yeah, I just live three blocks away, so we were really fortunate uh, that the winds didn't shift and come our direction. So, This is Stephanie. She is one of dozens of volunteers that have gotten together nearly every week since the fire. Some of them are just neighbors wanting to help, and others are from groups like United Way, Southern Baptist Disaster Relief, or GORE, a big company in the area that does volunteering as a team-building exercise. Right now, they're focused on cleaning up debris from the burnt homes. Lucinda told me that this part of the process alone can cost a homeowner well over $30,000, which could be more than what insurance would give a homeowner to do that. But yeah, so we were lucky. We were one of the lucky ones. So, so I figured it's the least I can do. And a lot of this area is area that we walk in, we walk our dogs in, and the forest that we use that is now, you know, destroyed or hurt or whatever. So it's really sad. With wildfires getting so much worse, it's no surprise that insurance companies are feeling hesitant about covering people in risky areas. And with so many Americans living in them, it's a big problem. Stephanie and her family have lived here for 13 years. 
we've since called and seen if we could upgrade our homeowner's insurance and they won't let you right now. There's a hold on this area. Okay. And they're like, yeah, you, we can't let you add anything right now. Mm. So it's like, oh, that's unsettling. <laughs> so you're allowed to like keep what you have, but you can't. Yeah, you just can't, we just can't increase it. Okay. Yeah. Lucinda told me that insurance is a major issue. Some companies just won't cover homes in certain parts of Flagstaff because the risk is too high. Three of the homes that burnt down in the tunnel fire were completely uninsured. Lucinda said that two of those families had to forego insurance to pay for medical bills. But even the insured have problems. And this is not just an issue in Flagstaff. I talked to the executive director of United Policyholders, a consumer advocate organization that's done surveys of people who lost their homes in wildfires across the U.S. over the past 15 years. She said they've consistently found that two-thirds of these people do not have adequate coverage to replace their home. They're underinsured, often by between $200,000 and $300,000. One reason is because building costs are going up quickly. And another is because insurance companies aren't always upfront about whether or not a plan will completely cover the cost of rebuilding. So a lot of people don't realize they're underinsured until they've lost their home and they're trying to rebuild. And so this public assistance is really valuable to people in this tough position. The county was able to arrange cleanups at all the homes that requested help from them, around 20 of the 30 that burned down. And one county official told me that all this assistance just wouldn't have been possible without the help from volunteers. So people like Stephanie are potentially helping their neighbors save thousands of dollars. And the work isn't easy. We are removing all the metal pieces so they can be recycled, loading up in wheelbarrows, finding all sorts of stakes and um, appliances. Yeah, so we have what, about 10, 12 volunteers here right now, so that's good. This home had been reduced to a short wall that showed the footprint of the house in all of its rooms. Kind of like an old archeological site of an ancient building. So we're standing in front of a stem wall. Um, the house has been burnt down to the stem wall, so it's about, what, three feet high? One of the county guys said it burned so hot that like even like a fireproof safe wouldn't have didn't make it and that some people's like gun safes, real expensive gun safes, didn't make it. The air was thick with potentially toxic dust particles. Everyone needed an N95 mask. Little clumps of what looked like just tin foil on the stem walls were the remains of aluminum windows. They told me this was a two-story house, but I couldn't tell by looking at it. The floors had melted and everything inside fell into a pile of ash rocks and sharp twisted metal. Every once in a while, you can see a little sign of some recognizable thing, like a spoon, piece of a wine glass, barrel of a BB gun. So we're trying to grab all the metal out to have that go to the recyclers. And um, we got big dumpsters to put it in so they can haul it away because that would be really expensive to haul all this stuff away on your own. So. Can you tell what any of this stuff is? It's kind of I mean, of that looks like it's a bed mattress uh, spring, you know, oh, mattress, yeah. um, spring board for the mattress. Okay. Uh, I think we're getting some, that looks like a wood stove. Mm. Um, I think this is underneath where the kitchen was because we're finding a lot of 
like knives and pans without the handles and stuff. <coughs> so. County District Supervisor Geronimo Vasquez was using this magnetic strip on wheels to pick up little pieces of metal. It was actually amazing to see just how many nails were in the house. He was picking them up by the hundreds and sweating while doing it. These are my constituents and so and I want to help. Yeah. You know, and I'm not about uh, to just come and do a photo op. If I'm going to work, I'm going to work. You yeah. know what I mean? All this work, over $30,000 worth of work, apparently, to clean up just one house. And that's just the first step in recovery. With wildfires only getting more prevalent and many insurers hesitant to work in this area, I couldn't help but wonder how practical it is to continue living in Flagstaff in this particularly flammable part of the forest. Are you worried about a future of that certain parts of Flagstaff or all of Flagstaff is just like not really feasible to inhabit because of fire and flood? Well, I don't know if it's completely unfeasible to inhabit, but it's just more at risk. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it just requires more more community building and more, uh, you know, support and volunteers to come help people. Because I think one of the problems is people feel overwhelmed and can't do it all by themselves. You know what I mean? And we, we have a slogan we like to use, which is neighbors helping neighbors. Mm-hmm. You know, because you never know when it's going to be your turn that you need your neighbor to help you. You know, and so we just got to continue uh, to persevere and continue through there. Um, we just got to be pragmatic and and uh, and be the calm through the storm, you know, and, and helping deal with, you know, the aftermath. Because that's one thing is like, you know, it can get people can when there's a crisis, everybody wants to help. Everybody wants to volunteer. But, you know, it's a month and a half since the, the fire, almost almost two months, you know, and the work's still ongoing. And, you know, we need people to help. You know, I can't forget about it once the, the TV cameras turn exactly. off and the radio station goes off, you know. And, it, and it's the long game, you know. It's, it's going to be a, a long-term cleanup effort, you know. Yeah. Here's, here's one if you want to use this one. Okay. Yeah. And with that, Geronimo was right back to work. After the cleanup, I drove over to meet the Leisure family, one of those who lost their home in the fire. You heard from them at the start of the episode. Hey, Dad. This is Anthony. Hey. Anthony, this is my dad, Eddie. Nice to meet you, Eddie. Nice to meet you. Eddie Leisure moved to Flagstaff 34 years ago with his wife, Monica, and baby daughter, Trisha. They've had this same plot of land on the outskirts of town ever since. Their whole family history has occurred here. Their second daughter, Jess, was born shortly after they moved here. So I was raised in this property my whole life, and so as my kid, we haven't really lived anywhere else. But my mom and my dad, they basically, they put in the septic themselves. They did all of this. They basically set up this whole property themselves. I talked to the dad, Eddie, daughters, Trisha, Jess, and Jess's 10-year-old son, Zen, at their property. They've already finished the cleanup process with the help from volunteers, so now it's just a patch of dirt. 
and the porch would have been about here so the front door would have been about here and the room I lived in when I lived here, right where that dark dirt is, okay. would have been my room and was now my nephew's room. Eddie's wife, Monica, Jess and Trisha's mom, died just months before the fire. And one of the hardest things for the family to deal with has been losing sentimental items that reminded them of her. Yeah, all the home videos, everything. It's dealing with, it's like losing her all over again almost with how much stuff and love and everything she put into that house. During cleanup, they searched for anything that made it. A lot of it was like going in there to fish for pieces of my mom, just to have pieces of my mom back. We had a day that was really hard because we, as we were doing some cleanup, we were in the area where we knew my mom's ashes had been because we were planning to spread them and hadn't gotten around to it quite yet with winds and everything. So it was, yeah, and you're digging and you start seeing lighter ash and you know, you know, it's like, okay, this, I'm not just digging through the ash of the house right now. This is the ash from mom's little spreading urn. We talked about her career racing cars and doing demolition derby. So your mom was like a big like car, kind of daredevil-ish like car. Dad jokes that she drove so fast that he put her in a race car to slow her down. <laughs> yeah, we were going down there and making the cars. I, I was little, so I don't remember too, too much of it. But making the cars was fun, being able to paint and draw on the cars and stuff like that. Definitely, like my mom, she won a derby trophy back in the day when... And so she won, She actually won a derby trophy, and that went up in the fire, and, you know. Yeah, First time she was ever in it, and she won it. I built, I built her cars, but, you know, uh, I can't I take credit for the driver. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, or a race gear went up in that, you know, went up race in the I never thought about that until just now. You know, the, the race suits and the helmets. And yeah. yeah, I found the helmet. It wasn't there. Was it's, it? It's toasted. It's toasted, but well, yeah. it's in there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we got the helmet so we can maybe set that somewhere, like by well, the car. I found the leisures from a GoFundMe page Trisha set up just after the fire. Today, four people, Eddie, Monica's sister, Jess and Zen live at the property. And even though she's moved out and has a family of her own, Trisha has made helping her dad and sister recover from the fire like another part-time job. She even got a new job that would allow her to take more time off to help. And it's also a huge financial struggle. Eddie is retired now. Jess is a caregiver for her aunt. And they have to replace literally everything. Yeah, well, you know, it, it actually hits you more down the road whenever you say, well, I got that, and you think, I don't have that, you know, and like the tools say, I'm working on something here, and I say, well, I got that, and, you know, and I think, I don't have it no more, it burned down, you know, that uh, that was kind of the worst part of it for me, you know. Yeah, I all, we basically made it out with the shirts on our back. So when it first all happened, they did that garage setup, the garage sale at one of the churches. Okay. And that's where we were able to get a bunch of clothes and okay. a bunch of stuff from there that really helped out big time. Yeah. So the community has definitely stepped up and really helped out there. Without the help they've received, the family would have been completely overwhelmed. Actually, I've been treated very well. You want to know the truth, like the county and 
volunteers, I didn't think we'd be this far along until the end of the year, the end of the summer. But now we're ready to put a house in here, so. <laughs> when I visited them a month and a half after the fire, they had cleaned up the whole site with the help of volunteers. They had installed new electricity hookups with the help of a neighbor. And then there is the GoFundMe, where they've raised over $8,500 so far. The GoFundMe really helped out. I mean, I appreciate all the help I got from them people. I mean, there were people I you know, don't even know, man, that just helped me, you know. With that money, they purchased an RV for them to live on at the property. It's an old one, but it's working for them. It's 1988, bro. That's a classic. And, you know, and I'll tell you what, it's yeah, everything works in it. It is, like he said, it is amazing with all the help that we have been getting because you do, you listen to the news and you think that the world's kind of crashing on itself and then you, saw, you go through something like this and you got people that are helping you from all over the place that don't even know you, just want to help. And That's so great. it gives you definitely, it gives you some faith in humanity again and, yeah. you know. The leisures do have insurance, but like most people in their situation, it's not going to be enough to cover the full cost of replacing their home. Trisha told me that they got $130,000 for the house, and the new one they want to replace it with cost $220,000. On top of that, she said they only expect to get about half the value of all their other stuff that burned, including some of Eddie's valuable tools. So in total, it looks like they're going to be short about $150,000. Well, right now we're, like, we're dealing with the insurance company and we're going to get that settled and then we're going to start house hunting. Dad's stressing that we're not going to have enough and yeah. which is why I still have the GoFundMe going because yeah. it's, it's going to cost a lot to get everything back up and, and going again. Yeah, Nothing's cheap. So like Trisha said, the GoFundMe is still up and active. There's a link to it in this episode's show notes. But even with all the work and stress of building back, they never seriously considered moving away, out of the forest, where wildfire risk is lower. So you want to live here, like, for, for a long yeah, time? Yes, this is, you know, this is my spot, basically. This is where me and after I'm gone, it's going to be his. It's going to be passed down to him or one of the grandkids, you know? Yeah. But it's, this is basically home. It's always been home, and... I'm, I'm not giving it up that easily, <laughs> you know, yeah. so. Right now, Jess and Zen are sharing a small room in the RV, but Zen has big plans for his future room. We're going to have basic colors for walls, and one of the walls is going to be the Sonic the Hedgehog wall. Okay. It's going to have two different colors on it. The right's going to be dark blue, and now it's going to be a bunch of modern Sonic posters on it. And the other will be light blue with a bunch of classic Sonic posters on it. Wow. And then there's going to be a so pink one with a bunch of Kirby posters. posters. <laughs> then there's going to be a pink wall with a bunch of Kirby posters all over it. A red wall with a bunch of Mario Lucinda told me the county had already spent $1.5 million recovering from the fire, and they were likely to spend another quarter of a million dollars before it's all said and done. 
That includes taking down hundreds of trees that were burned and are now at risk of falling in the neighborhood, which can be deadly. And all that's still a fraction of the money that will collectively go into recovering, from insurance payouts to individual people's investments to donations from GoFundMe. What's harder to quantify is all the heartbreak and stress that comes with the fire, even for people who didn't lose homes. Jess told me that she was actually thankful her mom didn't have to go through this. She was never the same after another fire threatened the house in 2010. This would have destroyed her because ever since the one, the other fire that we had and then the flooding, she actually really didn't leave the house after she was that. Afraid to. She was afraid she'd come home to this. Being gone. So she actually stayed. She became a homebody. She was afraid of it happening again. And just one week after I left the leisures, something happened that seemed somehow both inevitable and unbelievable. It's all happening again. A major wildfire burning just north of Flagstaff. Burning through more than 24,000 acres with no containment in sight. Yeah, Justin Allison, so as if one fire wasn't enough. It's like uh, deja vu, so it's like doing it all over again. Another wildfire in the same general area. Hello? Hello, this is Trisha. Hey, Trisha, how's it going? I called Trisha as soon as I saw the news. It's going. Lots of stress. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure. She was running around all day helping family members evacuate. Again. Uh, my dad and my um, other aunt and uncle got the evacuation notice yesterday. My cousins okay. got it today. So it was surreal to feel like that's like, okay, they just did this. And it's like trying to ask what to help with and getting stuff off walls that had just been put back up. And Yeah. So there, uh, is everybody gone from the house? Yeah, my dad's still in the RV out at the property. So he's just kind of seeming like he's trying to stick it out and stuff. And I think part of it is um, losing the house in the tunnel fire was traumatic. And he stayed with the Schultz Pass fire and the house was fine. So I, I think it's almost a trauma response. Oh, so it's almost kind of thinking like, well, the time that I left, it didn't work out. The time I stayed, it did. So. Yeah, and that's kind of what I'm thinking, which I'm not happy with him about, but I can't do anything about it. I can't even get out there. So it, it's been a nightmare trying to get him to try to even convince him to leave because, yeah, he's stubborn. Mm -hmm. When he has to, he'll start up the RV. He made sure it was running and he'll drive that. It's just slow moving in that thing. So, okay. What's your kind of like plan and on your to-do list for, for the rest of today at least pretty much uh going home try to try to calm down a little bit can't really say relax because there is no relaxing because it's going to be waiting to hear word hearing if the fire is doing anything else hearing if my dad left the property yet it's it's a waiting game now it just sucks because i i didn't want anyone else going through what we're going through because it's just a nightmare there's no other word for it Okay, yeah. Um, did, did, did this ever even, like, cross your mind as a possibility for just, like, so soon after? No, not even. I mean, I've lived here my whole life, and I've never seen fires like these. Yeah, because it's, like, 
you guys have been there for, yeah, 25, 30 years, and it's like 29 years goes by or whatever, and it's okay, there was the Schultz fire, but now it's two months and there's two of the worst that there's been. It's, yeah, it's hard to believe. Yeah, and it's like, okay, we should be making plans for Father's Day coming up this weekend, not trying to figure out who has homes to go back to. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it just sucks. I'm sorry that it's happening again. I hope it, I hope everything turns out okay. A couple days later, Trisha texted me that everyone was okay and back home. The RV was fined and in total, just one house burned in the pipeline fire. But what that second fire did do was dramatically burn the watersheds on the mountain above town. It made that mountain bald in areas. And so now when water hits it, it will rush right off it and into the neighborhoods below. As Andrew Sanchez met her, an ecologist from Northern Arizona University explained to me, When a raindrop falls from the sky and it hits the ground, it comes with a bit of force. And when that, you, know, you see the slow motion of a raindrop exploding, that, that carries soil with it. And so you know, vegetation intercepts that, then the force hitting the ground isn't as much. Mm-hmm. But if you remove the vegetation, then when it hits the ground, not only does the water move, but it moves soil with it. Uh, if you heat up that soil, you can make it hydrophobic. It's often described as as changing it to have a waxy coating around it, which Mm. causes water to move off of it. So in a a post-fire condition, you have rain hitting the ground with a large impact. It's moving both water and soil at the same time, and then it's building up speed as it's moving down slope. So now those neighborhoods are preparing for another round of disaster, flooding. And it can be much worse than the initial fire. By some estimates, it's over 10 times more costly. They've, they've had the trauma of these fires, and now they're going to have the trauma of flooding. So the disaster in this area will continue. And all this compounding disaster raises questions about the future. Flagstaff, like so many cities faced with the increasing threat of climate change-induced natural disaster, is in a kind of race against nature. What can be done to protect the people in the forest and keep the city and the rest of the Western U.S. habitable for years to come? Is there enough resources and time? That is in the next episode of Inhospitable. You know, you can't can't be overwhelmed. You have to stay really focused on what we can accomplish to try to be it forest restoration or flood mitigation, you've just got to stay really focused on achieving whatever positive impacts you can. And forest restoration is the only way we're going to get out of this continuous process of, of continually having to fight these flood fights, right? And we keep saying, You know, we can't just keep doing this over and over again, right?
thank you so much for listening. And to be sure you don't miss our future episodes, subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. If this episode sparked your curiosity or inspired you to take action yourself, you can find more information on the organizations we profiled and the issues they face on our website, hearearizona.org. That's H-E-A-R Arizona. There, you can also find our other podcast series on the most pressing challenges our state faces, like homelessness, aging, and funding for the arts. One of the best ways to support our community-based solutions journalism is to tell your friends about it. They can search for Here Arizona on their favorite podcast listening app, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, NPR One, Spotify. And since we're all about empowering our community, we want you to be a part of the conversation. Follow Here Arizona on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Special thanks to the Leisure family, Coconino County, Lucinda Andriani, and NAU's Ecological Institute for their help with this episode. This series is in part supported by Intel, committed to creating a more responsible, inclusive, and sustainable future for Arizona. Intel.com slash Arizona. This podcast series is made possible by grants from the Nina Mason Polium Charitable Trust and the Arizona Community Foundation. Here, Arizona is a production of the Division of Public Service at Rio Salado College, which includes Sun Sounds, Spot 127, KBOC, and KJZZ. This episode was reported, written, scored, and hosted by me, Anthony Wallace. It was edited by KJZZ's Carrie Fair Snyder. Linda Pastore is our executive producer. Thank you.